Hello and welcome to Second Rate Film School. My name is Andrew Wass, and today we're going to be discussing one of mine and a lot of people in my generation's favorite TV shows, Courage of the Cowardly Dog. From its inception to the episodes you remember, the ones you've forgotten, its legacy and beyond, we're going to cover it all. This is part two of our retrospective. Part one detailed the origins of Courage and general behind-the-scenes details of the show. Now, if you haven't checked that one out, pause this video, and down below in the description, you'll see the link to that episode. Click on that, go watch it, and then come on back here to see part two. Now, without further ado, let me reintroduce our guests. Our first guest star is series creator, director, and writer, John R. Dilworth. Hello, Andrew. Very nice to be here. Nice to be anywhere, but especially here. Next up, we have the head writer of the show, David Stephen Cohen. Thank you, thank you. Staff writer and animatic supervisor, William Hohauser. I, I thank you, and I, I thank you for uh, having me here. I hope uh, I can clarify a few things uh, of what we're talking about. Musical composer Jody Gray. Hi. Good to see you. And last but not least, the man behind the voice of Courage and his screams, Marty Grabstein. Welcome to the show. Hey, this is yeah, just a pleasure to be here with Andrew over here on on another delightful Zoom call. I look forward to whatever we're going to be creating together. It's, I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. Now let's head back into the middle of nowhere and dive into part two, where we're going to explore Freaky Fred, other fan favorite episodes, Trouble with the Censors, and The Heart of Courage. Something horrible wants to destroy our humble nowhere shack. Who will protect our home? Someone protect our home. Who will protect our home? Courage the cowardly dog. Courage the cowardly dog. Courage the cowardly dog. Courage the cowardly dog. Okay, you've seen the thumbnail and I've teased it enough. So yes, let's discuss Freaky Fred, which, David, you're responsible for unleashing into the world. <laughs> for those of you who've been unfortunate and haven't seen it, well, here's how it goes. Freaky Fred is Eustace and Muriel's nephew, who is very, well, naughty. He narrates the episode and has an obsession with shaving people, animals, and of course, is very naughty. Unfortunately for Courage, Freaky Fred sets his sights on him, and for the rest of the episode, Courage is being tormented and eventually shaved by him. So among many other things, the music, the rhyming, and the general look of Freaky Fred has made this episode legendary. What's also notable about this episode is that, outside of Eustace, Fred is the first human antagonist that Courage has gone up against. And this is one of the very few episodes that has no supernatural or cryptozoological elements or characters. So this is by far one of, if not the creepiest episode of the entire series. So David, what was the inspiration for this episode? And is there any truth behind the fan theories that the shaving is a metaphor for sexual abuse or fetish? Well, um, the second thing, the, the, the character and, and his, his, his freaky fetish, is a word I would stay away from, I guess, because there are people who have viewed this episode, um, you know, as being something more than it was intended to be, uh, um, something darker. 
but it was it was all I, I was walking in the village with John and I remember exactly where we were. And I remember him cro- we were crossing a street and he said, I want to do an episode. He knew that I loved to write verse and I had just come off doing 20 Seuss musicals for Nickelodeon. So, you know, half hours of, of, of solid rhyme. And uh, I'm a lyricist. I just lo- love wordplay. So he said, you know, John knew that. He said, let's, let's do this one in rhyme. And I want it to be about a freaky barber who just can't stop shaving. He just is driven to shave. And, you know, it, the Sweeney Todd illusion certainly was obvious, uh, but Fred was his own kind of character. And, you know, then it was a matter of finding a rhyming pattern and cadence that spoke to the character John had described to me and that further brought him forward this freaky Fred gave him bit, you know, gave him as much character as we could so that he wasn't just a monster of the week. And I remember when I, when, when I found it, and that's what made me naughty as, you know, as the last line for every, pretty much every verse. Very naughty, 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 naughty. Naughty, 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 naughty. You know, I said, ah, I found it. Naughty is the word. And and uh, Bill Marsili, who wrote the episode with me uh, and also wrote King's Ram, the King Ramsey's Curse, uh, was also is also a very good versifier. He had worked for me on Seuss, and one of the few people I would say, "I'm doing something in verse. You want to do it with me? Because it'll be fun." And uh, you know, I kind of came up with the template for it, and then you know, we we just kind of like riffed on each other's ideas. I think I think he was, I was like in the first half, he was in the second half. Then we swapped and and. Uh, it was fun because I, I did start out my career with a partner. I, I kind of missed that interaction, but it's a rare thing to find somebody who you can really mesh with, you know, whether it's, you know, in every possible way or, hey, we, this guy knows how to write verse and, you know, has a dark sensibility like I do. And, you know, let's let's have some fun. That was the the, the beginning of Fred was was in was in John's head and uh you know, bringing, bringing him to life, giving him that voice. And, and, and I forget at what point, I mean, I don't know if it was after the fact that Paul Scheffler, who did the voice, um, who I'd seen on Broadway as Captain Hook, I mean, he's a tremendous actor, uh, you know, great voice actor, but a great stage actor uh, as well. I forget when I first heard the voice because it's hard for me to think of even writing the script without hearing that voice in my head. You know, so, but that voice brought as much to the character as, you know, what I wrote for the character. And it really points at something very interesting, which is how a character develops in each of the, you know, this, the conception of the character and then the artists, you know, this is what the character looks like. This is the graphic presentation of the character. There's, 
what the character thinks and says, how it acts, and 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 how that affects the story. Uh, so there's the writing, and and there's the music that helped Fred with their little the the, the uh, uh, really haunting theme that plays underneath it, which is a sort of a twist and turn version of several different pieces of music, you know, that come to mind, but all very twisted. And, uh, and then Paul Scheffler delivers this character, this, this performance, all was, you know, the, under the direction of the director and, and you know, storyboard artists. It's, it's, I look at that episode and, and I feel everyone's contribution to that character. I mean, I feel a sense of authorship, you know, uh, uh, but it was wonderful to be there for sort of the conception for me of the character. And then sort of seeing how dimensional he became as he progressed down the conveyor belt of production and all the people involved really tuned in to what was there, you know, in, in, in terms of what John had created in this character, what we had written. Well, that's a pretty innocuous start to a legendarily creepy episode. I'm also glad that's actually the case that people are reading way too deep into this and that like most fan theories, these ones are bunk. Regardless, this is quite possibly the best-known episode of the entire series. The only episode that comes as close is, I think, The Curse of King Ramses, which we'll discuss later. It's hard to ignore the fan reaction and its impact on the series as a whole, even 20-plus years later. It really is. I mean, today, there's a, a, on, a, on YouTube, there's um, Freaky Fred Reanimated, where each shot is redone by a different animator with the original intention in terms of story but a different style and it's really psychedelic and it went up and it, it like very quickly got a couple million of couple million hits and and, and now it's up to like seven million or something like that and and it's it just it's just it filled me with joy to see like that work then interpreted by all of these young artists who grew up or came up watching the show and 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 learning from uh, not just this show, but different, you know, there's a lot of Easter eggs that they plant in those scenes. But it really, I, we had no idea how much power this, this would have, you know. Uh, when you're doing the show, you're just trying to get it done and, and I'm trying to keep it, you know, keep it good. And 20 some odd years later, you know, it's got this cult status, which, uh, I wish we had then, <laughs> you know, it was, it's, it's funny, you know, when things like you work on things and they're sort of, they're hits and they stay alive a certain amount of time. And then like they go away, but 20 years later, you're saying, oh, it's a resurgence of, you know, it's when the kids who watch the show as kids become adults and they start getting tattoos of your characters, you know, you, you know, you did something indelible and <laughs> turned it into literal ink uh, on flesh. Now, William, you have a decidedly different view of this episode. Would you care to elaborate? I'm surprised um, uh, Freaky Fred made it I, at all. I, I, I still personally am very disturbed by that episode. I Look, it, it, it was, it, we were, um, this was years, I mean, when the show was airing and I was at a friend's house and they were like, oh, hey, look on the thing. Courage is on. Let's turn it on. Okay, yeah, let's turn it on. I don't, I don't know what episode it's going to be. And it was Freaky Fred. I turned the TV off. 
why? I said, no, I do not want this on. I do not want to explain the show. I don't want, I don't want to not explain it. I, I just don't want it to exist at this moment in my life. I, I was hoping, oh, oh it'd be Courage to Fly. Oh, it'd be, you know, I, I, that was the one episode that I, you know, I, I, but I see people, they make little gifts of them and they, they little pieces and, and I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I'm uncomfortable, but you know, I, I'm not everyone's psychologist. Maybe this is good. I'm not the one to, I'm not the one, I'm not the one to say, you know, I mean, here, here I am. My concern is used as falling down the stairs. That's all I care about, you know? Oh, okay. Uh, you know, courage to, you know, oh, courage is screaming because he sees something scary and like, well, how's he going to fall apart this time? Uh, it, 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 it was not one I was happy about. Uh, and I, I still find it disturbing, but I also find it amazing that uh, it, it is one of the most talked about episodes, uh, you know, 20 plus years later that, you know, when you go on Courage, you go, you know, wherever on the social media, Freaky Fred comes up a lot. Uh, Freaky Fred comes up, uh, Perfect comes up, but Freaky Fred, wow, uh, that is such a creepy episode. And, and Freaky Fred himself, there's, there's so many overtones that I, and I don't even know if when it was written, I knew what the overtones were because I had worked with abused adults who had been abused children on, on, on some media projects many years. So as soon as I saw this story shaping up, I said, uh-oh. You know, this is going into nasty territory. And, um, but, you know, my, I was, you know, in a way, I guess I was wrong. You know, it was good that it got made and that there was a lot, there's people out there who somehow, I don't know how they're relating to it. I don't know if they're relating to it that way on a conscious level or, or, or what, but, you know, the whole thing with Courage being locked in the bathroom with this creepy old guy who wants to shave him and stuff pancakes down his throat. It's like, whoa, <laughs> it's like we couldn't make that. Nobody, nobody could make that today, except if you were like, you know, uh, you know, for, for, you know, either as a joke for frat boys on Adult Swim or some independent production where they would. But th that would be that would be flagged by, you know, society is like you, you can't do it you'd have to you couldn't do it in a jokey way like that it would have to be super serious am i right am i wrong of course not but in 1999 cartoon network said this is tvy7 but they've learned their lesson by giving it a much more mature rating of tvpg maybe they haven't learned their lesson yeah i mean i mean you know so so you know one it's sort of remarkable uh two i I think maybe some leeway, you know, in, in overall was being given to us by Cartoon Network, mainly through Linda Semensky. Um, uh, you know, like, let's go a little further. Let's, let's, let's up the age, you know, group a little bit, you know, to get a better audience. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I wasn't, and that wasn't, or maybe they weren't thinking about it at all. They were busy with some other crisis for four years. I don't know. Um, it, 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 but we were lucky. I, I can't, I can't, I could, I could say, yeah, the Cartoon Network was screwy and did this. And oh, yeah, you know, I'm screwy. I did that. Uh, John's screwy. He does this, you know, but, you know, it, it worked out. 
Now, a huge part of what makes this episode so creepy is the music. The music follows along with Fred's narration quite well and really lends to the freakiness of the entire situation. I have to say, as creepy as the theme itself is, what really gets the hair on the back of my neck standing up is the children's choir. On the surface, none of these elements are creepy on their own, but when you combine them together, something about it's just really off-putting, much like Fred himself. So, Jody, how the hell did you come up with this? <laughs> That's actually Andy and I singing a fuck. Yeah, 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 you know, doing that shit. But um, what's really that's very funny that you mentioned that because um, Freaky Fred was a thing that like I was kind of alone in the studio and I was trying to think about what would play in this guy's head. You know, what would be the music that he heard? So um, I happened to um, not be a fan of the Chipmunks Christmas song, you know, Christmas, Christmas. So I did like a minor version of that for Freaky Fred. So it's really kind of the Christmas song, you know, just like backwards, you know, it's just messed up. And we played it, it's essentially um, a theme that's played in different contexts throughout the whole show. It's basically 90% of the score of the show is some version of that theme. Now that you say that, I can hear it, and I will never be able to listen to that song again without a chill running up my spine. Sorry! <laughs> oh, no, no. It, it, it's fine. It's fine. I, I didn't like the song that much. <laughs> Joking aside, when you add all these elements together, you get a wonderfully creepy theme that feels like it could be in a hard R horror movie. Like, I can totally see this playing over the jump rope girls from Nightmare on Elm Street that go... Just as creepy as what they actually had in that movie, but this was meant for kids. <laughs> yeah, you know, that show, um, I am surprised. In a, That would never get on the air today, I don't think. I mean, it's just, it's just too dark and crazy. And it's like, I have a friend who's a child psychologist who called me up after seeing that show and said, this is rape. What are you doing? This is child rape. And I'm like, courage is the child. And he's, no, he's getting shaved, you know? So it was, I get it. Uh, I just think that there was a lot of really groundbreaking stuff uh, score-wise that we were able to do. Pretty much everything, everyone that you've mentioned so far were very, very unique, really interesting um, experiences for us because we really thought about those themes. We didn't have a lot of time to write them so we had, had to kind of, you know, dig deep really fast and get something because it also had to be approved by John, you know. Um, so we would do like a quick mock-up of it and send it. And, or he would come in the studio and he'd say, ah, this is great. Whenever we went, we know we have to do it again. Now, David, with your background in both writing and in music, how do you view the score's impact on the story itself in this episode? Jody and I really had been collaborating for a year before we met because of the way the show was set up. I called it a conveyor belt. I'm at the beginning and he's at the end. And uh, but we've been best buddies and writing songs together ever since. Uh, worked on a lot of projects and just a lot of songs that we just wanted to write. His contribution to the show was was tremendous. The, 
there was such personality to to the music and the Freaky Fred episode really demonstrates that well. Um, you know, it's it's animation is such a wonderful intertwining of art and artistry and artists. Uh, so so is any production, I suppose, but there's something about animation, I guess, being so musical that that really appeals to me as a as a songwriter. Now, again, there are plenty of great musicians out there, and the show still would have been great with any of them, but not as great. And you know why I know that? Because your music has done something that literally no other show or movie ever did to me. As a little kid, I was a scaredy cat. I really could be scared very easily, which was quite the conundrum watching a show like Courage. But usually what I would do when I would see something scary, like let's say Who Framed Roger Rabbit, when the scary part came on, I'd close my eyes because it can't scare me if I can't see it. Remember me, Eddie? When I kill your brother, I talk. Yes! I couldn't do that with this show. Your music was just as scary as what was on the screen. I didn't need to see anything to still be scared. Hell, even now, I'm nearly 30. I have a 401k. I pay taxes. I'm an adult. But the music still gets the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I am not looking forward to editing this late at night. That's so cool. Thank you very much. I mean, that, you know, we really went for that. I mean, so like my personal um, view of film and TV music is the dialogue is like the libretto for an opera. You know, it's kind of like I... I, like what's going on with the dialogue? What's going on with the characters? And listening to that, listening to the tone of the voice, you know, there was great voice actors also. That wonderful guy, uh, Peter Fernando, who's since passed away, uh, you know, who played a lot of um, characters and Paul Sheffield, uh, excuse me, Scheffler, sorry, Paul, um, who was, uh, you know, instrumental in so many voices, just incredible. And, um, you know, I would listen to those guys' voices and the texture and the timbre of them and try to figure out also emotionally the sound of the voice and the content of the voice. What does that dictate? And that's how we kind of got this like global feel for it. And it also made it easy in a way, uh, even though there were some there was some music that was repeated, as you know. You know, it's kind of like uh, some of the music from uh, Demon in the Mattress was repeated. Some of the music um, from the Benton Tarantella piece was repeated, this sort of dark zombie music. But most of the stuff that you're talking about, I think, are these themes that just, you know, they lay there. They didn't overwhelm the dialogue or the character they were a part of what that all was. You know, a lot of music is just like background music, it's just wallpaper. But we tried really hard to, to have something really iconic and something that drove the emotion. And that was also something that John, you know, he just wanted the music to be awesome. And he's often said to me, I don't worry about the color, I don't worry about the music, that's it. Everything else I worry about. And that was very nice. Now, pivoting briefly back to the amount of stuff the show got away with, I think the lack of studio meddling would actually surprise a lot of people. 
We have the perception of this era in kids' entertainment that the parental watchdog groups are reigning in supreme and really trying to make sure nothing offensive could be on TV for kids to see. Though just looking at shows like this, Ren and Stimpy, Rugrats, any of the Spielberg shows, and you could see there's a lot of humor in there that, while yes, flying over the heads of kids, really isn't that appropriate. And it's actually pretty surprising that it was allowed to be on. I think you could argue that this era actually had more latitude than people give you credit for. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's often true. Look, not everybody can deliver the shows that were delivered during that time, given all that freedom and, and you know, money to make a show. Um, but drowning a writer in notes is not helping the writer at all. So, yeah, it was... It's, it's not often that you you get that much room to gestate, you know, a show because like the first season is sort of a real gestation process. And and yeah, I mean, I, I'm just trying to think of other projects that I've been involved with. Uh, and there, yeah, there are just very few where, where sometimes you'll be working under somebody who has enough clout to protect you from crazy, stupid network notes. Uh, not that they're necessarily crazy and stupid, but the head writer often has to synthesize a lot of this, you know, sort of disparate notes that come from different people involved and then interpret that for the writer in a coherent way. That's actually an interesting element that I think a lot of people probably overlook that a good producer can give you a lot of protection. I mean, having Steven Spielberg as their producer allowed them to get away with murder on Animaniacs. That being said, though, I'm sure there had to be a few times where you guys pushed it a little too far and the network smacked your hand back, right? Um, you know, the network censor thing was, it's, it was strange, uh, to me at least. I, I mean, you know, yeah, we can all sit back as fans and go, oh my goodness, they censored it, you know. Um, and, you know, and, and go, oh, the, the, the auteur has been squelched, He's blah, blah, you know. But sometimes, you know, when, <laughs> when you get censored, but you still want to get that point across. You come up with some really smart ways of doing it that is not exactly readable to the people who are doing the censoring. We did a few things that they said outright no to, um, uh, but they were odd. Uh, like we had a, the Hollywood sign in one episode and we, they were like, no, you can't show that. that we're going to get sued. They were, they were worried about things like that, like getting sued. So we came up with some alternate. It was, I, I don't remember what we did, but, uh, but occasionally they would be, uh, well, okay. One example was that the um, Asian character who was voiced by one of the artists on the show, uh, the, the Asian character uh, whose name was never mentioned on the show for that very reason. They, he was named, uh, Let's say it wasn't a wise idea to call him that, and I won't repeat it, because you have a family audience. Yes, exclusively. And I might mispronounce it and actually not say the right naughty word. So I don't want to be incorrect, but, but we, we were never allowed to, to say his name on the show. Okay, fine. It, it was, he was a peripheral character. For a fun family game, unscramble these letters to find out what the name was. But I'm, you know, I, I was actually amazed how much we were allowed to get away with. We didn't get too many notes back. Uh, the, the one that struck me as being really whacked out was uh, 
the the episode with the they were going camping and they're, they're the two bandit raccoons. So at one point, the raccoons, like all the other characters on the show, some reason have an obsession with kidnapping Muriel or, or abducting her in some way. They they abduct her. And uh, there's there our usual thing where, you know, courage, Muriel's going and courage imagines something in, in thought balloons over his head. It's like, oh, what's happening to Muriel? And it's always an absurdity. So he's imagining something. And one of the things we came up with was uh, that the, the rack, he's imagining the raccoons around the campfire with bones and, and, and they're, they're, they're picking bones and with a skull. And the Cartoon Network came back and said, you can't show that, that's horrible, that's terrible. You know, we, we can't have anyone thinking that Muriel's dead. And we're saying, well, she's not dead. She, it's, it's an imagination, it's in a thought balloon. How can you make it clearer? I mean, it's like, it's just the characters against a white, in, against a white background in a thought balloon. I mean, it's, it's not real. No, 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 no. And they said, well, here's, here's an option, do this. And they, they sent back something. I, I don't know where it came from, whether it was, it was written or drawn, but basically they wanted the, the same pose, the two raccoons and the campfire and Muriel's there and she's alive, tied up, but, and screaming live. Ah! And, but her legs are, which are kicking up and down, are skeleton legs. So <laughs> it's like, and I looked at that, I called up, I said, no, no, <laughs> this is, this is like, you know, like, you know, hard R now. We're, we're, we're in like, you know, uh, Eli Roth territory where this is, this is uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre material. She, she's alive, but she's half eaten. This is an improvement. Uh, you know, so that, that, that was like an instance I remember. I mean, I'm, I, there may have been other ones that did not filter down to me. That, that filtered down because it was in the animatic process that they were making these, uh, making these changes. That's incredibly bizarre that they drew the line there because there were far more disturbing moments and episodes that just slipped on by. So clear thought bubble of a skeleton, no. Freaky Fred and King Ramses, yep. Ramses comes up. Yeah, the, that that was, let, let's, let's face it, that Ramses, I didn't experience it as a, you know, 30 plus 40 year old, whatever I was when I worked on the show. I did not experience it at Ramsey as, as terribly scary, but it was terribly scary. And it, it, I, I have to say, you know, Cartoon Network let it go. And for, and I think that's that was good of them. I mean, uh, you know, but I, I, did, I had no concept of how scary it was going to end up in the animatic process that that it was going to end up being the sort of like 3D animated, you know, you know, and, and, and the animation is like very stilted. So it actually, that makes it scarier. Uh, but they, they were okay with it. You know, uh, I, I, there might have been other instances, as I said, that did not filter down to me. Yeah, I think this episode actually scared me the most, even more than Freaky Fred, if you can believe that. I think it's because it comes down to the creepy, uncanny CGI on Ramsey, something that kids wouldn't have seen too much of at the time. Return the slab. What? Return the slab. Oh, suffer my curse. Uh, but yeah, the ironic thing about it is, 
This is the episode I easily watch the most, and that's because it came on the VHS for Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders. So yeah, pre-streaming, pre-DVD sets. If I wanted to watch Courage at any given time of the day, this is the only episode I could guarantee I could do that with. So yeah, I ironically watched this the most, even though it was clearly the scariest one for me. And again, I couldn't just close my eyes to avoid Ramsey's because the music was so damn scary, Jody. Now, pivoting away from the traumatic and scary episodes, I'd like to focus on the heart of Courage, the more soulful, sweet, bittersweet, and emotionally charged episodes. Now, these weren't the majority by any stretch. That still was the scary episodes. But I'd say about a third of the episodes in the show fall into this category. The first episode I'd like to highlight is David's episode, The Curse of Shirley. The episode begins with Muriel planning Eustace's birthday celebration, which he pointedly does not want to celebrate. Ain't gonna be no party. When the titular Shirley shows up, begging for help, Courage and Muriel eagerly help. Eustace, on the other hand, doesn't. Thank you for your kindness. What about the bald one? Yeah, I got something to give. As punishment for his cruelty, Shirley places a curse on him to have a perpetual rain cloud hover over him. Comedy ensues as he tries to ignore it, but towards the end of the episode, we get a very unusual moment for Eustace. We see that he cares. At one point, a delusional Eustace sees Courage as the boy version of himself. It's so hot. My head is burning. Oh, no, I, that's not right. Little boy, little boy should have a hat. Eustace empathizes with the boy and offers his own hat, which breaks the curse. This moment is important because it's kind of the yin to hotheads yang. Yes, in both episodes, Eustace deserves punishment for his bad actions, in this case being so mean to Shirley. But in this episode, we get a bit of a glimpse behind the curtain. We get to see why Eustace is the bitter old man that he is. We can gather as a bald child that Eustace was probably bullied a lot and didn't get shown a lot of love. This is corroborated in an earlier episode where we see Eustace's mother is also bald, implying that this is a family trait. So we get to see a picture being painted, and you get to see what leads him to acting like this. Although these were rare occurrences, we did get to see a few more moments of a kind-hearted Eustace, and we'll get into one of them in a moment. Well, uh, thanks. I, I, did I write The Curse of Shirley? I, I'm like, I'm thinking either Susan Kim or Craig Shemin, uh, two of the you know frequent contributors to the show. I mean, you are listed as the writer of the title card. Perhaps I did. There are certain, certainly, again, words of mine are in it. And by words of mine, I, mean, I don't mean just words. Uh, you know, scripts are, are, are the words are the least important. The dialogue is the least important part of the script. Um, don't quote me on that. I didn't say it. Um, but uh, yeah, we, John, has a real, you know, sentimental spot, and 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 so do I. Um, and at the center of the show is love and sweetness and redemption. Um, you know, there's not always the need to redeem your villain, you know, but it's sometimes very funny to do that. <laughs> um, uh, depending on how you handle it, but often very touching. And I remember that with, with, with Eustace. Um, and that's very John, I, I think, you, you know, it, it, it was funny. I mean, just I'll, I'll bring up another episode, which was Little Muriel, which I know I did write, 
because more macaroni, more cheese, less macaroni. I hate macaroni and cheese, uh, which became quite a, a, a thing on the internet. And, and uh, I remember writing it. It was very much alive. But anyway, it's little Muriel. And, and you see, here's little Muriel. And she's this little difficult, really annoying kid. And, and she's a lovely, loving older lady now. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time analyzing, like, how did that kid get to be that nice lady? Uh, but it was interesting and it, it, it sort of gave me, okay, so she was, she was a difficult little girl or somehow in the magic of the episode, she was a different little girl than she actually had been uh, in terms of personality. Uh, but seeing Muriel drive courage crazy. Sit down, stop it, stop it, sit down. That to me was golden, you know, it says here's, here's the little kid version of Muriel and courage. Now she's suddenly the villain <laughs> driving courage crazy and he's gotta be nice to her because it's Muriel. It, it, was, it was always interesting to really understand where the characters come from, uh, even if you're discovering it, you know, a couple of seasons in and exploring, you know, so let's, let's do a young, you know, Eustace episode or young Muriel, little Muriel. Um, yeah, and little Muriel was just really antic, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a deep character study. Another fan favorite episode you wrote that's incredibly emotionally charged is The Last of the Star Makers. In this episode, we see a couple that are part of the star maker species, basically just giant squids in space that, as their name implies, make stars. Suddenly a space whale attacks the pair and the male sacrifices himself so the female star maker and their unhatched offspring can escape. The mother crashes just outside the farmhouse where we see the military show up to experiment on her and the eggs. Courage and Muriel decide to defy the military to save the day. And in a shocking turn of events, when Muriel is captured, Courage goes to save her, as we've seen him do in 48 preceding episodes. But she stops him. She's so sad. I think she's withering away. It's all up to you. You've got to get those eggs back under that squid, or else there'll never be any new stars in the sky. Go help her. So this is pretty shocking for two reasons. One, Courage isn't saving Muriel. That's like the entire premise of the show. But they're mature enough to understand there are greater things at stake than her temporarily being endangered. And second, that Muriel is actually aware of what's going on around her. As lovely as she is, she's pretty oblivious to everything. And that's part of her charm. But in this episode, she knows what's going on here. So these moments are quite an advancement for the two characters. Courage is able to reunite the eggs with their mother. They hatch, and then the gut punch comes. The mother actually passes away. Courage wasn't able to save her. So we're left with a very bittersweet ending where the Starmaker species still survives, even without their parents, and the mother's body creates a lush garden as a tribute to her legacy of making the world a more beautiful place. A very deep and emotionally mature episode of a show that's often distilled down to just being the scary show. So David, what was it like writing this one? Like so many of the episodes, it was John's idea initially, um, just quickly. I mean, often John would generate the episode in, in like, you know, a short paragraph and it would be approved. 
uh, and then it was up to me to sort of guide this into becoming a, a full story. Um, and less of the star makers was you know very much John's idea, and it, it it was a pleasure to write it because it was a nice break from the episode I'd written before or had just rewritten or given notes on or gotten notes on. Uh, you know, it's the thing about courage. There's so many. We we played with form and 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 you know in in various ways, but certainly in storytelling. Um, you know, I, I'm 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 a very sentimental person. You know, and I cry easy. I get I, you know I get weepy, uh, and uh, you know if I if I'm writing a courage script and I'm getting a little weepy, I don't want to run away from it. You know, I, I just want to say okay, I just I don't want to get too maudlin or anything. But uh, yeah, less of Star Makers. It's, it, a lot of people remember that you know really fondly and really felt sort of a genuine you know, sense of what was at the center of, of the episode. Uh, and I'll also say, this is just, you know, speaking to that and another point, I, 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 was, often, I was often concerned that we were scaring kids too much overall. You know, if, if, if I was picturing a five-year-old watching this and friends of mine would call me up and say, yeah, I was just watching, you know, the show I just saw for the first time with my five-year-old. And I would say, well, watch a few more episodes before you keep watching it with your five-year-old. Um, but I think my fears were ill-founded because most of the people I talk to today who grew up watching the show and were five when it premiered uh, have said that the show helped them through difficult times in their childhoods uh, where they felt no control over a world that was not being kind to them. And of course, there's a wide spectrum of unkind, uh, but children of abusive parents. Um, I've heard beautiful podcasts just talking about how, how much uh, sanctuary children found in this cartoon about this scared little kid, really, you know, scared little dog. Uh, whose world was out of control but with the right amount of love and smarts and action, you know, he could control things and, you know, you can't control everything. And it's hard as a parent, it's hard to tell your kid, you know, everything's fine. I certainly don't know how to do that today. Um, and my kids are adults, uh, but it, it, it's, uh, it's really wonderful to hear from fans and a lot of the comments on, on the Freaky Fred reanimated thing really brought that out to me. How much children were able to feel strength as a result of watching Courage, you know? And it didn't even occur to me at the time that this is what we were doing. We weren't trying, you know, but it's sometimes when you're doing a show well and you're doing it in a way that satisfies you, and the people you're working with, if you're the right combination of people, then it's it's a dream, you know, because you're speaking to something really honest, something central, you know, that a lot of the kids watching can share, you know, and 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 take with them, you know. So uh, 
you know, when somebody comes up to me and says, God, you scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. You totally fucked me up. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's like, until I hear the thank you, my, I'm, 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 I'm worried, you know, but episodes like Star Makers was, you know, will, will children, now that I'm writing that way, will, will kids follow this story? Yes, you know, it's, it, it challenged young viewers, I think, to uh, sort of relish different types of storytelling, different levels of action. You know, it's much easier to do a chase, an episode that's <laughs> entirely a chase, you know, uh, but it's, it's, it's got to have an, an emotional arc to it. And a, a character has to, you know, famously Seinfeld was supposed to be about, it's a show about nothing and, 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 and nobody ever learns anything. Uh, I would argue against that. Um, you know, you have to connect with the show, you know, and, and, you know, this, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of John's psyche is encouraged and my psyche seeps in and, you know, it's, it, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great having experience like that where it wasn't just like one season, you know, it really feels tangible to me, feels very much very present to me because it was, four full seasons of a show over, you know, however, a couple of years that we did it. Um, you know, and I really miss courage. Well, that's a sentiment I think we can all agree with. Um, but back to Star Makers, I'm still in awe how all these years later, it's still just as effective as when I was a little kid and still how emotionally charged it is. Most of the scary episodes really don't affect me the same way they did back in the day because now as an adult, I've seen plenty of hard R horror movies. I've seen Saw, I've seen Halloween, seen Scream, etc. They're creepy for sure and I still love them, but they don't keep me awake as much as they used to is the thing. This episode, on the other hand, is still just as devastatingly sad and bittersweet as it was all those years ago. Anytime I talk to people who remember this episode, I often joke that this episode was very traumatic and when the Star Maker's mom died, this was our generation's Bambi's mom. But I'm only partially joking because not one person who I know who's seen this doesn't say some variation of, oh god, that was such a sad one. I cried like a baby. This episode goes a long way in teaching children how to accept grief, the death of a parent or a loved one, that beauty can still be found in the world even with their absence. I know personally that it came in handy after my grandmother passed away a few months prior to this episode airing, and then a few years later when my grandfather died. Very few children's shows have the guts to try and tell a story like this, and usually when they do, it's very melodramatic and surface level. The only other show that I think did it just as good as this one was the Chucky's Mom episode of Rugrats. When a gentle wind blows, that's my hand on your face. And when the tree gives you shade, that's my sheltering embrace. When the whippoorwill sings, that's, that's me whispering night. It's one of the most brilliantly and beautifully crafted 11 minutes of television you will ever watch. Two other emotionally charged episodes I'd like to discuss are The Tower of Dr. Zolost, and The Mask. These two episodes are pretty unique for a couple of reasons. First and foremost is, they are the only two episodes of the show that are 22 minutes in length, and both were written by John. The Tower of Dr. Zolost, which was the season finale to the second season, 
falls to the titular doctor, whom is implied to suffer from depression, on a one-man mission to make everyone as sad as he is. Throughout the episode, we see the crippling effects of sadness and depression on many people, including the doctor. There's a scene with him in the castle surrounded by a Scrooge McDuck level of wealth, eating ice cream in a comfy bed, and watching William and John hitting each other on the head for some reason. But yet he's still miserable. What's the good of having all the money in the world if it doesn't bring any happiness? And if I'm not happy, no one deserves to be happy. He asks for a hug from his henchman, Rat, and we see a glimpse of a smile. But due to it being one-sided, the hug is unable to break through. You call this a hug? You're not even trying. If you can't give me a real hug, then get away from me. Get out! This scene is important because many shows do the sad bad guy story, but fail to express the real depth of depression. Zalost is actually looking for something meaningful to fill the void, and as he can't, he now wants to make everyone as sad as he is. As the episode progresses, Courage finds a simple pleasure of Muriel's plum dessert, which he is shown eagerly eating as she lovingly makes it earlier in the episode. Did you eat all of our happy plums? <laughs> is the cure to the sadness cannonballs the doctor is firing all around nowhere. Now something important happens here in a blink and you'll miss it moment. When we get to the climax, the rat henchman has been turned into a crying baby who is now seeking comfort from the doctor. In a reverse of the earlier scene, the rat now wants the genuine hug to, and to be comforted, and it's now the doctor blinded with his desire to make courage pay, ignoring the rat. In the end though, Dr. Zolas is cured and him and the rat happily embrace. Rat, come here, Rat. Give me a hug. This episode, much like Star Makers, takes a very serious and important topic, depression and sadness, and packages it in a way that kids are easily able to understand it, and well-crafted enough that the adults watching it don't feel preached to. It works as a good metaphor for both a kid who's seven and an adult who's nearing 30 or older. And the true topper of the episode is that the moral is, sometimes the simplest things made with love, can make the greatest difference. It's just beautiful. The next two-parter came from season four's The Mask. This episode opens up with a woman wearing a very large mask approaching the farm. Upon seeing Courage, she starts beating him, saying, Dogs are evil. Now, while Courage has been obviously injured before, the way this is depicted is a little off. The shadows are harsher, the scene is a bit darker, as if a storm's coming while it's still a little dark out. Now, while Courage's injuries end with a gag of his eyes and nose falling off with goofy sound effects, he still looks worse than usual in this moment. Also, a rare occurrence happens when he's still sporting the injuries in the next scene, when typical cartoon logic would have had them disappear. The masked woman, revealed to be named Kitty, joins the trio for breakfast, but she doesn't remove her mask to eat. Here she reveals her friend Bunny is an abusive relationship with a dog gangster named Mad Dog. He treats her like she's a slave. Which explains her hatred for dogs and her reaction to courage earlier. She continues her story and explicitly states that Mad Dog threatened to kill her for trying to help Bunny escape. When he found out I was trying to get Bunny to run away, he threatened my life. Already, this is a very heavy episode, and we're just three minutes in. When Yusus tries to make a typically mean-spirited joke, Kitty reacts angrily by smashing all the dishes on the floor and storming out of the room. Dogs are evil. Yusus, for potentially the only time in the series, actually looks afraid of what he's just seen by this very realistic depiction of anger and abuse. That night, Courage sees Kitty take off her mask after playing with a toy mouse. 
He does the typical Courage freakout and does the typical Courage attempt to warn Eustace and Muriel of the evil mask, but to no avail. Determined to get answers, he sneaks into the room and steals the mouse, which we see is inscribed with the message, Two Kitty, Love Bunny, which is the first hint that these two may be more than just friends. Courage continues to the city where we see an uncomfortably realistic depiction of an abusive relationship where a despondent bunny stares off into space as Mad Dog goes from love bombing her to verbally abusing and gaslighting her. Come on, bunny. Don't I make you happy no more? Or maybe you're still thinking about Kitty. <laughs> I told you to forget her. And again, in no uncertain terms, threatens to kill her if she tries leaving him. If I even smell, Kitty, I'll bury the two of you. <laughs> oh, buddy, you know you're my girl. Let's go back to the way we was. You know, happy-like. Everything's okay. Now, it's important to note that even though Courage has now received confirmation that everything Kitty has told about Bunny being in an abusive relationship is true, he still views Kitty as a villain. <laughs> Courage aids Bunny in escaping, where again, I cannot stress this enough, a homicidal mad dog chases the pair down, trying to kill exclusively Bunny, because as we see, Courage nobly tries to sacrifice himself to give her some time, but Mad Dog ignores him to just kill Bunny rather than let her escape. As Bunny flees, Courage intervenes, causing Mad Dog to swerve his car onto the train tracks right in the path of a fast-approaching train. The car is then destroyed, and Mad Dog is dispatched. Courage obviously survives and is thanked by Bunny, who then sees Kitty is actually aboard that train as she had attempted to track Courage to the city. The two are reunited and say, Now we can be best friends forever. They embrace even holding the toy mouse like a couple would hold mistletoe in a not-so-subtle hint of this again being a little bit more than just a friendship. Kitty realizing her stereotyping of all dogs being bad is wrong, thanks Courage for everything. Thank you, dog. Thank you for everything. So this episode is a lot. I've never seen a children's show come even remotely close to depicting domestic abuse in as graceful and respectful of a manner as we've seen here. Of course, we've seen the already previously mentioned love bombing and gaslighting and threats made by Mad Dog, but we also see the impact all this has on its victims. Bunny is in a deep depression, almost catatonic at moments, while Kitty is depicted as having pretty realistic PTSD bouts of fury and resentment to all dogs for the actions of Mad Dog. We also get a very interesting element from Courage showing prejudice against Kitty. It's not until the literal last minute of the episode that he realizes she wasn't the villain all along. Then comes the romantic depiction between Kitty and Bunny. While now seeing a gay or lesbian relationship in kids' content is much more common, remember, this came out in the early 2000s when gay marriage was non-existent in the U.S., and the idea that it would be nationwide law one day was a fairy tale. Both this episode and The Tower of Dr. Zolas are masterclasses when it comes to taking subject matters that are really tough for children to understand, but packaging them in a way that not only can they understand, but can empathize with. What's really impressive is, this also works for adults as well, because not only do we still get the story, but... As we've gotten older and a little bit more life experience, we can read between the lines a bit and get a little bit deeper of a story. 
So, John, what was it like writing not only the two longest episodes of the series, but the two most emotionally charged episodes of the series? Well, uh, satisfying. I, at the time, I, I, we were only doing what uh, I'm capable of at the time. I mean, I wouldn't want, I don't know, I wouldn't want to look back at it and, and start criticizing it uh, for its lack of craft or how I could have improved things. But we had a lovely formula. And it was one that I felt absolutely comfortable in. So writing something like the Tower of Dr. Jolos. And Jolos is roughly translated to sorrow or sadness in Croatian, because I was spending a lot of time in Croatia at the time. And the tower itself was modeled after the old medieval tower that's overlooking the city of Zagreb. I tell you, uh, the cartoons are not just random they have a lot of significance to my life and i used it uh, in the cartoons so the mask there was multiple things i was getting away with i don't know how it's like what you said andrew how did we get away with this i don't even know that these cartoons are being aired i've heard from colleagues in europe that they're edited but i haven't seen it and it really doesn't matter but you know, same, same sex love, male brutality, and it's all there. What about female brutality? Did you, no one ever talks about how a woman is just beating the hell out of a man. Uh, well, it's a dog, but look at that. It's animal abuse. I mean, it's just over and over. I mean, not, I would have to go back and comb through all of the themes that we were able to do. And Escape from New York was a big influence in that. I know that the dog, where the dog lived on the wrong side of the tracks. I was thinking escape from New York. I don't know why I brought that up, Andrew. <laughs> You'll have to bring us back to the topic. No, I love seeing the method behind the madness. Um, you know, joking aside, that is actually a very interesting point because the way you depict the city here isn't the same way you've depicted cities in previous episodes. Yes, both are dirty, and yes, both are scary and creepy, but the way this city is designed is a lot more real and dour. You really get the feeling of desperation Bunny is in when Courage comes to rescue her. Again, not something you would typically see in a children's show. The other design aspect from the show that I really appreciate is the, no pun intended, masking of a clear lesbian relationship to get past the censors by one, making them different species, and two, stressing that they're just good friends. Good friends, yeah. What's wrong with that? Exactly. Nothing wrong with that at all. Please don't write us angry letters, parental watchdog groups of the 2000s, or just modern day bigots. But it truly is one of the most beautiful and tender episodes of the series. We even get a really nice sweet moment between Eustace and Muriel, who spent most of the episode just fighting with each other. Which was a rare thing to see Muriel getting angry as she usually just lets the barbs Eustace throws just roll right off her back. In the end, they both apologize to each other and reaffirm how much they love each other, which again, is just so sweet. Eustace, I'm sorry for the terrible things I've said. That's okay, Muriel. Nobody's perfect. I know it's fun to see Eustace get smacked over the head with a rolling pin or something bad happened to him as comeuppance for something he did to Courage in most episodes. But moments like this and the previous ones I've mentioned go a really long way to inform the character of Eustace, 
and really explain why such a sweet woman like Muriel could be with a really miserable SOB like Eustace. We see here that, yes, he can have a really rough and gruff exterior, but he truly does love her, maybe the only thing in the world that he loves, and that she can bring the nice side of him out. This is also important to distinguish the difference between Eustace being a jerk that we can laugh at for being mean, and the real serious issues of abuse being portrayed between Mad Dog and Button. You know, uh, among our, my long history with Cartoon Network and their initiating projects that they then cancel, there were two specials that I was engaged to write at the time I was living in Barcelona. There were half hours. One was for Halloween and the other one was for Christmas. And one of the stories... I'm not sure if it was Halloween, but I think the Halloween uh, special was going, I was delving into when Muriel and Eustace met and the act that Eustace never overcame, that he swallowed. And that was, uh, it was related to Muriel's uh, Advers uh, Eustace's adversary, Muriel, had a previous lover, another lover that was courting her at the same time that Eustace was. And Eustace chose not to act that ultimately led in the death of his adversary, but he deliberately chose not to act. Oh, wow. And that kept with him. And you see what happens to him. He never talks about it, but he's a miserable sod. Yeah, wow. Uh, that sounds incredibly amazing, and I'm incredibly bummed we didn't see it because that could have had the potential to be one of the best episodes of the series. That being said, I can see why Cartoon Network pulled the plug on it. Yeah, I can see on the surface why Cartoon Network would say that's not a story appropriate for children, but I think it's a very important lesson to teach kids that the ramifications of your actions and how they can ripple through your life can really inform the person you'll become. So in this case, we can see this action causes Eustace to become the miserable person we know him for. Well, I like full novelistic backgrounds on characters. However, they, Courage wasn't, wasn't designed for kids. I wasn't you know, a, a random 10-year-old, maybe, but the 10-year-old in me that grew up on Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers cartoons weren't for kids. They were for adults. And I was making, I was straddling these two worlds. And there is nothing offensive in the series. I, I mean, I don't think a kid, the way I would have handled that Halloween special, it would not have been, well, so obvious. It would have been done with a little bit of style. So you're not offended, but you get the impact of its message. Oh, of course. I can imagine this being like the mask where it's very subtly done, where kids would understand the more broad message. But a lot of the subtlety and nuance would be missed by them and be aimed directly at the older audiences. Yeah, there was a lot of prejudice when the show aired initially among pre uh, parents who, who actually thought it was too scary for a cartoon. And it was given this uh, interesting stamp of, you couldn't be seven years of age or younger. You had to be over seven to watch it. And I always thought that was a, a, a mark of distinction, like an honor. Because the first thing you do when you're a kid is when you're met with a constraint, what do you do? You go ahead and you, it, it encourages you. <laughs> 
Exactly. And I think that comes into play why this show is so iconic. The kind of almost forbidden, mysterious nature of this show. All the things our parents didn't want us to watch as kids that they were worried would corrupt us. Or as my parents are now saying, watching this retrospective, wait, we let them watch this? I turned out fine for the most part. Yeah, these are just five episodes that are incredibly different and have a variety of different life lessons, morals, and things to learn from, all being given to us by Courage the Cowardly Dog. Now, Marty, we've been discussing a lot of the team's favorite episodes and their contribution to fan favorites. So are there any performances or episodes you're particularly proud of? You know, in terms of pride, I mean, I think pride was in that very first uh, episode. You know, to walk into that, you know, that booth for the first time with a water bottle and 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 a music stand and and storyboard right here, microphone here, vocal script here, and saying, "Okay, so we're gonna go one at a time, line by line." And I remember the first few lines. We would go through it. What it would be. Good night, courage. It may be a good night for you. You'll be in a warm bed. And I would do it, but I'd hear. Okay, I think we got it. Let's go to the next. When I would hear that, I'd be thinking, oh my God, this is, not only am I doing this, but they're really liking what I'm doing. Like so much so that we don't have to spend a lot of time. Like, I think we got it. That for me was, and they really rolled good in the first episode. We had other episodes where it took longer. It was not, it was a little bit more, uh, you know, rugged. But for that alone, it was, is a memory that I'll always, you know, have, which is why when people say my favorite episode, I have to tell them the shadow of courage is my favorite episode personally, you know, though I would have to throw in the King Ramsey's curse and uh, uh, freaky Fred and the Hunchback of Nowhere, I'd have to throw those in, those three. Two, three very different, all of them, right? Um, but, you know, as far as creativity goes, you know. And I think this is a good place to end this part of the retrospective on. So join us next time as we discuss production problems, the end of the show, and its legacy and beyond. I'd like to thank John, William, David, Jody, and Marty for giving us another peek behind the curtain at what made Courage such a great show. Until next time, I'm Andrew Ross, and I hope you've enjoyed your time with us. We'll be back before he can say teeny tommy hot dog. Although I don't know why he would. <laughs> <laughs>